All right, bradcooney.com is absolutely honored to have in exoplanet scientist Hannah Wakeford. Hannah, the world has been really exciting for you guys lately, huh? Oh, yeah. It's uh, kind of explained a little bit. We're not, we're not alone in terms of uh, Earth-sized worlds around strange little alien, alien stars. Yeah, man, that's exciting. So, it's just, I remember when I was a kid growing up in upstate New York, I had a telescope, I had an astro, we had a planetarium in our, in our school too, which was really cool. So I took astronomy when I was in junior high school. Um, really exciting. And I remember looking up into the stars, and I can I remember seeing Jupiter, and I could see the ring around Saturn, and I really, really took an interest in astronomy. Not at your level, of course, but you found seven planets, um, revolving around a star. And three, according to reports, are within the Goldilocks zone. Can you, can you touch on that a little bit for my, for my listeners? Yeah, so there's this uh, star called Trappist-1, which was discovered by a Belgian team uh, of astronomers. And that star has seven Earth-sized planets that orbit it. And what's really exciting is that three of these Earth-sized worlds are actually in this Goldilocks zone, as you said. And just to kind of really explain what that means, the Goldilocks zone, or the habitable zone, as some people might have heard it called, is the temperature around a star where it's warm enough and not too cold for liquid water to exist. So at this distance from the star, the water can exist as a liquid on a surface of a planet. So if we've got a surface, then we should be seeing pools of water there. Yeah, very interesting. And just so the listeners know, just because a planet's within the habitable zone doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be life or even water, as like Venus, for oh, example. Venus, Venus is what? Fantastic, then. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. That is exactly um, the point. It just means that the temperature's just right. So it doesn't mean that we've found life. It doesn't mean we're going to uh, particularly soon. But it means that it's our best shot. Mm. And that's why this is so useful, because there's three of these planets, three Earth-sized worlds, which kind of suggests that they're going to be lucky because they're very, very small, and it's hard to make something like Neptune that small. Right. And because they're likely to be rocky, and they're in this perfect temperature zone, if there is enough water there, and if it is a liquid, it might exist on that surface. And every bit of life that we know currently, you know, requires water. Mm -hmm. So from our current understanding of how life evolved, and our current understanding of the different types of planets that would be needed for life, these are our best shot at looking for that. Mm -hmm. But we have by no means discovered that there is life beyond our solar system, or even beyond our planet. Right, right. Okay, so one of my one of my um, followers on Facebook wanted to know. Uh, she asked, she asked, what's the difference between Trappist One, which is the star that these planets, these exoplanets, are revolving around? What's the difference between that star and our star, our our sun? So Trappist One is what is called an ultra cool dwarf star. Uh, this means that it's very very small and very very cold. Now, these are relative terms in astronomy, so just to put it in a little bit of perspective, even though it's kind of difficult, the sun, uh, let's say that everything is one. So the sun has one mass, one radius. Um, that, that would be our reference point. So the trackest one star is 8% of the mass of the sun, so very, very small, mm. and 10% of its size. So imagine a very, very small sun. But now, because it's so small, it's also very 
1,500 degrees. Now, that doesn't sound very cold, but when you think about our sun, it's around 6,000, 7,000 degrees. So it's much, much cooler, and this makes it very red. So it's a very small red star. Very interesting. Can we tell the distance between the exoplanets, each one, and, and Trappist one? Yeah, we can, and that's uh, because of the technique that we're using to find these planets. Now, the technique we use is called the transit method. So what we're looking for is this planet as it passes in front of the star from our perspective, and that blocks out a really tiny portion of that star's light. So I want you uh, and all your listeners to imagine that a mosquito was flying in front of a street lamp. There'd be a very tiny amount of light being blocked out by that mosquito as it passed in front of the street lamp. Now, if you measured that over time as it passed in front, you could see the dip in the overall amount of light. And that's what we're measuring. So from that, we can actually get the size of the planet. And as I said, all seven of these are Earth size. So they're very, very similar in size to our own planet. And then if we can see multiple of these events, multiple times that they're passing in front of the, the star, so imagine the mosquitoes flying round and round the street lamp, we can actually measure the orbit for the year of each of these planets. And if we've got that for each of them, we can work out how far apart they are. Wow, that's great stuff. All right, so in your estimate, how, how far away do you think we are um, from getting data on, on the atmospheres, of the atmospheres of these planets? Oh, we're very close to getting data on the atmospheres of these worlds. And in fact, last year, um, we knew of the, the two innermost planets, the two planets that are closest to Trappist-1, B and C, we knew that they existed last year. And we actually did follow-up observations with the Hubble Space Telescope to look at their atmospheres and try to work out what they're like. Um, so we've, we've already got it for two of them, and we're very, very close to getting it for more of them, and that's incredibly exciting because uh, it really shows the scientific process. You know, we find things, and we have to go further, we have to look more, and it turns out to the system, as we look more, we found more things, and now we want to go look and try and work out what those are like. So um, it's really, really exciting that we're able to do that for these kinds of worlds. And I'm guessing one of the things we'd be looking for is methane, right? Is, is a methane signature indicative of, of possible life? That's very true. If we're looking for kind of these biosignatures, as they're called, what we're looking for is an imbalance in the natural gases around mm. that planet. So us as life on this planet, actually cows and sheep, produce a lot of methane. Uh, and you can imagine where that comes from. And that causes an imbalance from what would naturally occur if we just left all of the gases on the planet to themselves. So we're looking for these kinds of imbalances. Now, the current technology we have in, in space to look for these um, cannot look for methane, but in the October of 2018, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the largest space telescope ever built, will be launched into space, and we will be able to use that to look for these signatures of methane and carbon dioxide and, and other things in the atmosphere. Very exciting. Okay, I had another one of my, my followers. She, um, she wanted me to ask you, um, with this discovery... Will we be listening more closely for any intelligent life? I guess she's asking about SETI, like really honing in. Now that we have something to really hone in on. So SETI's already had a look at this 
system and, uh, and haven't actually found anything um, significant. Uh, I'm not an expert on SETI's you know, sure. method of discovery, but um, from what I understand is they've had a look at this system when we first discovered the two innermost, the closest planets, um, and, and didn't find any significant signals. But there's no stopping them from going back and having a look. Um, it's really exciting that we now discovered that there are seven of these planets. Uh, so, so who knows what could be there in that system? And I would think that if you were involved in SETI, um, if I was or you or anybody was involved in SETI, this this has to be really exciting for them because uh, going forward we're gonna we're gonna discover more and more exoplanets and, they'll, and they'll, you know they'll have a you know instead of using the shotgun approach like they used to use now we can use the rifle approach. Yes, they said you've had programs in the past where they have selected very specific stars to look at, um, so it's. I suppose as uh, discoveries increase and the, these different types of planets we're finding um, are getting smaller and easier for us to follow up observations of, it gives them, you know, better chances. It gives them the better targets to look at. But they, they have done targeted approaches before. But yes, this is by far one of the best targets they will, they will have for a good decade to look at for these kinds of signals, I, I think. Okay, one more question from, from social media. Um, and this guy's name, Alan, he wants to know, let's say we do get signs of life from one of these planets. Let's, let's, so I guess, let's say we do, we, we, we measure some data and we get really big spikes in methane. What will be next? So what, what, what's next for you guys? So the next thing is really um, looking for these different signals. It's not just methane that we're looking for. We're looking for oxygen. We're looking for uh, different signs that the star is not stripping the atmosphere. We're looking for like things that tell us that there is potentially water on a surface. And this requires a whole host of different telescopes. These are all tiny little puzzle pieces that, that we bring together as astronomers um, and exoplanet astronomers looking at these kinds of worlds. And actually, that's going to take us well into the future. It's not just the James Webb, but it's the telescopes after that that are going to be able to get deeper down in the atmosphere and be able to see very different things. And it requires us to look over all colors. It, it requires us to look in the UV, the X-ray, mm. uh, all the way through our beautiful optical spectrum and out into the infrared where James Webb's going to look and these methane features really pop up. But it's a massive combination of things that need to be in place for us to really say that this is this has life on it. So it's really a system that everybody's going to know that they trap is one. Everybody's mm. going to know it because we're going to be looking at it for decades to come, and we're going to be trying to delve in and really understand what these alien environments are like uh, and how that tells us about our own environment. How far away do you think we are? from developing the technology and telescopes to directly see these planets? So these planets are incredibly close to their star. So all seven of these planets uh, would fit within the orbit of Mercury in our solar system. Oh, wow. They're very, very close in. They're very tightly packed. Um, and that makes for very interesting kind of theoretical studies. You know, if there was life involved on these planets, they'd be hopping between them because the planets in the sky would be bigger than the moon. Oh, um, yeah. So it's absolutely beautiful and fascinating to think of what it would be like to live on these worlds. But because they're so tightly packed, it makes it incredibly difficult to get a direct image of these planets 
and in the way. So what we'll be doing in the future with future missions, which NASA uh, are designing and leading right now, uh, is looking for Earth-sized planets around more uh, sun-like stars that are distances where we can actually get an image of them. So because this star is so cold and so red, the habitable zone is very close to the star, whereas our star is much, much hotter and bigger, so the habitable zone is further away. So the further away the planets are, the easier it is for us to take a picture. So in the next 50 years, we'll get a picture of an Earth around another star. Oh, wow. But it won't be... Um, it will be very, very difficult, and we won't know everything from that observation alone. It takes many different things to bring that together and try to understand what's going on. Wow, it's just amazing how large, <laughs> I mean, this is just mind-blowing. Okay, so let's talk distance. How far away is it, and with current propulsion technologies, how long would it take us to get there? So, in galactic terms, it's incredibly close. It's yeah. only 40 light years away. So 40 light years is the, like, it would take 40 years for light to get there. <laughs> so that's really, that's the solar neighborhood is what we call it, because it's so, so close. But if you use a jet plane or something fast that goes through Earth's atmosphere, it would take you over a million years to get there. It's, it's still quite a distance. That just that only highlights how quick light travels. Jeez, yeah, we haven't we haven't reached Star Trek warp nine stuff yet. We got a long ways to go before. Oh, we get I that. wish. I know. Let's put a Stargate on one of them. That's what we want. Yeah, the wormhole stuff, right? <laughs> that's that's oh man. All right, so how many of these exoplanets have we discovered so far? In like in total. So the total number that I've confirmed is around 3,000, but there are around another two to 3,000 that we're doing follow-up observations of. The scientific community um, is doing follow-up observations of to try and confirm that they are actually planets around these mm. stars that we're seeing. So we're anywhere in the region of 5,000 exoplanets, which wow. is mind-blowing considering it's been just over 20 years since the first one was discovered. You know, I mean, when you look at the, I mean, the, the 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 big question everybody wants to know is, are we alone? And with these discoveries, when you know, when you look at the math, I mean, we can't be alone. I mean, the the, the odds of that happening is just ridiculously, you know, this is this is got. That, that's something that has been discussed in science fiction of time, it's, you know, the, the thought that there are other planets around other stars stems from Greek philosophy, mm. and the first ever science fiction story was written about travelers from other stars coming to visit the Earth. It's something that we, as, as a race, have been thinking about whenever we look up at the sky. So it, it is something that is really inherent in everybody at some point in their lives, and the numbers are just so huge. We're you know, since the Kepler mission, which was launched to look for these exoplanets around uh, 150,000 stars, we know that they're everywhere. We know that there are so many planets out there. There's got to be, there's got to be something, uh, and that is fascinating. And it's got a really deep root in the way that we think. One of my favorite lines in the movie Contact with Jodie Foster was, "If there's nothing out there, it's an awful waste of real estate." <laughs> oh yeah. 
It's like one of my favorite yeah, lines. I believe that, that that's also covered in the Monty Python Galaxy song. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, so you, you you talked about about the the technique. We, we, like we see, the, you use the mosquito in front of the the, the street lamp. What other data can we currently get with the current technology in these exoplanets? So what else we know about these planets is their mass. So the technique I talked about before gives you the size of the planet, the radius. But the mass is something very difficult to do. And what we're able to do with these seven planets is we can actually measure the pull that they have on each other. So we can do that by looking at the differences in time that it takes for them to pass in front of that star. So imagine that you've got a tennis ball that you're swinging around your head. If you have something else that randomly tugs on it at some point, it's going to be slower. Mm. So it's going to do a different, it's going to pass in front of the star at different times. We've been able to measure that for these planets. So we're seeing the tugs that they have on each other and working out what their masses are from that. But that's very specifically for these multi-planet systems. It's quite a, a different situation when you have a single planet and a single star. Now, to get the masses in those systems, we're looking at the tug that the planet has on the star itself. And we can see the wobble of that star in the light that it sends out to us. And that's called the Doppler effect. And you, you hear this. It's exactly the same as what you hear when a siren goes past. And that change in pitch as it comes closer on and goes away, we can actually see that effect in the light and we can see how the, the planet is tugging on the star as it orbits around it. And that gives us the mass of that planet. So there's a number of different things that really come together to give us all the information we need to work out what their environments might actually be like. Wow. All right, last question I got for you. So this Belgian team that discovered this, kind of talk us through the process of, like, what determines what star to look at and how many people are doing this how many teams are out there trying to find stars and just and just and and waiting for you know the light to dim basically you know like like how does it all work so there's quite a lot of different teams um, um international teams actually that are looking at from the ground using ground-based telescopes up at the stars and trying to work out when these dimming events are happening now what's really special about the trackers team is that they looked at a very different type of star to everybody else. Mm. They were looking at these very small, very red stars. And everyone else is looking at stars very similar to the sun. So the yellow ones, the slightly orange ones. So that's why this trappist is so special, is that they're looking at something completely different to a lot of other surveys. Um, but what is also really interesting is that trappist, so it's named after the survey itself, which is also happens to be the name of a Belgian beer. Oh, wow. But, uh, I know, we should name them all after beers. <laughs> but the, the traffic survey itself was just a test. It was not designed specifically to look for planets. Oh, it was man. designed to look for comets. It was designed to look for asteroids out beyond Neptune. So it was just testing out its systems, and it managed to find this planetary uh, system called Trappist-1. And that is unbelievable that... They, they got that good. And what's incredibly exciting for us as a scientific community is that they're developing a new instrument which is going to be dedicated to looking for planets like this, mm -hmm. around stars like this. So hopefully, uh, in the next few years, they're going to be uh, discovering a number of more different systems that are like this. And we 
Yeah, I, I was going to say, I bet there's a whole lot more teams looking at the kind of star that the Belgian team looked at now. I bet that's triggered a lot of activity. Well, the, these, these M stars, these very small red stars, have been uh, in the literature, like we've been thinking about them for a while, because if you have a smaller star, you can see a smaller planet, because they make the equivalent amount of light change mm -hmm. as a big star and a big planet. So it makes it easier for us to do these detections of these small ones, but then the stars themselves are quite hard to see because they're so dim, they're so red. Uh, so there's a number of trade-offs you have to do when you're, you're designing these kinds of surveys, but it's a really interesting idea, and I think that lots of different people are really pushing the boundaries of exoplanets and really trying to work out, are we a solar system unto ourselves, or are there others that look like us, and what kind of planets do they have? Do they look the same? Are they gas giants? Are they rocky terrestrial worlds? There are a whole host of hellish Venuses out there, and that's something we're really just very excited to find out. Awesome stuff, and Hannah, I really, really appreciate you doing this interview. Um, we want to get you back on down the road if, if anything, anything new pops up, some new news for us. Fair enough. I, there is always going to be more news. There's non-stop exoplanet discoveries in the future. Well, I'm going to keep you locked in, and we'll do a follow-up for sure. I really appreciate you doing this tonight.